0: Oftentimes in a movie like this, it could be an Agatha Christie type movie, but you just have like a roster of characters and you at least have one or two characters you find yourself rooting for. It's sort of the horror movie format, isn't it? That, you know, a number of characters can be dispensed with, but oh, I hope she makes it, you know, that kind of a thing. I don't really want anyone particularly to make it here, maybe one or two exceptions, but it's just, you have to take it at that level. It's not a very nice movie, but it's about people who are not very nice.
1: Hello, and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westheimer,
0: And I'm Mike Giuliano.
1: And today we're going to talk about the menu. And she said, starting with the menu. So, Mike, I want to start off by saying that, you know, I usually try not to read anything about a movie before I go in so that I don't have any preconceived notions. And I had gone to the Cheesecake Factory right before this movie and was sitting eating at the bar before I went to the movie, and, you know, the bartender said, what are you going to see? And I said, I'm I'm going to go see the menu, and he said, oh, isn't that the movie about, you know, the people stranded on the island, and I don't know, maybe there's cannibalism or something, I said, what? I said, I thought it was going to be, like, something like Chopped, and he said, oh, honey, no, and sure enough, he was right. I was, I don't want to say blindsided. I was very surprised to find out what it was about. I'd seen the previews, and I thought it was about this very high-strung famous chef, and I thought it was going to be something like many of the food movies that you and I have watched and discussed. What was your instinct about what the movie was going to be all about when you walked in, Mike?
0: Just the opposite of what you said. (laughs) No, actually, for whatever reason, I'd read about this film quite a bit. I knew the gory details heading in, and so it's crucial for us in, in terms of our audience of setting up the premise for it, but not really saying too much about what's going to happen further in, other than it's not a feel-good, you know, happy-go-lucky food movie. It's something else or something further. So I was careful actually not to eat beforehand, and, and I had no appetite afterwards either. I was glad to watch it on an empty stomach. But in terms of the basic premise here, it really involves what we like to refer to oftentimes as gastro tourism. Namely, their factor, they're really uh, well-heeled, very wealthy people who will not only travel a long way and at considerable expense, to fancy restaurants, but they enjoy the ordeal. I mean, you know how many hours on the plane and the bus and this and that. And so uh, there are real life examples, uh, not quite of this restaurant, but th- things that are pretty close to it in a way, where you know you pay all this money and you go, and it's it's like the chef's menu with a vengeance. And so in this case, the menu takes place on a, an isolated island in the Pacific Northwest. It has a sort of Agatha Christie quality to it. This small group of well-heeled people. Many of them quite eccentric and many of them really not very likable. So if, if they end up poorly, we don't feel too sorry for them because they, you know, you know, are, are bad people in various ways. But in any event, you know, there are, they're they're interesting characters, not always likable ones. Anyway, they go to this island and Ray Fiennes plays the, the master chef there, who is totally in control of the menu. And what's interesting here is that just partly at that Agatha Christie level of well, what's going to happen here? Uh, And it's not going to turn out well, as you can imagine, without spoiling the details. But also the details that really are enjoyable is how close to real life this is in terms of what restaurants like this can be like. I'm not exactly among those well-heeled gastro tourists, so I know this in a secondhand way. But let me just describe some of the the menu items that this guy serves. And when you hear this, you're going to think, that's so absurd. Nobody would ever pay $1,000 for, you know, this, this tasting menu. But this is one of the items. It's a bread plate that has no bread. So oftentimes in these restaurants, you'll have an enormous white plate, right? And just a little bit of food at the center or something. This is a case where there's like nothing there. It's they serve you the white plate, if you will. And the only thing that's served with it would be what I'm calling the condiments, like various dips and emulsions and things like that. And it's truly high concept food, isn't it? When you don't even get the food. So that's one thing that's served. The other one that I thought was my absolute favorite was, imagine a rock being served to you on a plate, and this is like a sea rock, like if you're on the shoreline, what you might pick up to take home as a souvenir, but a rock like that on a plate, there is a single raw scallop sitting on it. I mean, just one, right? That's it. That's your portion. And it's surrounded by seaweed and algae, very tastefully arranged. I mean, there's an art to the plating, as they would say in a restaurant. And so this chef's menu has the people there for the very long evening. It's course after course, but those two courses are typical of what's being served there. So not only is the clientele unlikable in various ways, and we can talk about individual characters, but the food itself seems almost inedible. And in fact, some of the customers start to complain after a while. That you know, I'm, I'm still hungry. Kind of syndrome. Or you what? What are you doing here? Uh, some of them do start to rebel that way. But you know, these people are paying well over a thousand dollars to be treated like this, and they're expected to show complete deference to the chef. He really is dictatorial, and many of them are happy. To, to serve his, his wins. I mean, they're gluttons for punishment among other kind of gluttony. So Marie, what'd you make of this? Because what I did like about the film is the fact that it, it, as absurd as it sounds, it's not that far different from what these gastro tourism driven restaurants are like.
1: Yes, I think you're absolutely right. I felt like when I was watching these creations come out that they were all Pinterest ready, You know, they looked really high concept. And I think at one point someone even says to one of the characters, relax and eat your rock but what it did remind me of is a time I'm no gastro tourist I don't have a thousand dollars to blow on a meal but one time when I was with my family in Paris we decided to go to the Jules Verne which is in almost at the top of midway up the Eiffel Tower and I thought based on the name that it was going to be I don't know sort of a seafood themed family restaurant you know with like a a Jimmy Buffet kind of thing something sort of witty It was very high end. We were so underdressed. The food was so incredibly expensive, but we went with this tasting menu where everything that came out was just like what you saw in this movie. Teeny, tiny little things, you know, you would serve the Thumbelina. Little cobweb-sized, you know, just tiny, tiny, very, very arty food. And when we left, we immediately hit the Midway near the Eiffel Tower and got some ice cream cones off of a food truck. (laughs) But what this did remind me of in terms of this like little isolated world where everything comes to a head because everybody is trapped. Mike, did it remind you at all of Triangle of Sadness that we saw recently?
0: Yes, it did. In fact, a number of reviewers have made that connection because they had just reviewed Triangle of Sadness and now they're (laughs) reviewing the menu. So whatever's going on there, I'm not sure I want to even pursue the thought further, but there's something there that is definitely a connection between, between those films. And in some ways, it's an easy target to spoof the ultra-rich like that. That's one reason, like with Triangle of Sadness, I just thought it's such an obvious target. It was just like too much that way. Uh, in this film, I sometimes had that reservation, speaking of reservations for a restaurant, but not to the same extent, simply because the restaurant culture was so so scathingly well-captured that that always held my attention there. And the fact that these foppish, foolish, sometimes really dislikable rich people were getting their comeuppance, yeah, I, I could enjoy that. But And the Film is not subtle; it doesn't have a light touch at all. But I was smiling often enough, just simply at the literal menu items that that you know I didn't feel like I was being clubbed over the head constantly with the the, the satire of, of of the ultra rich, and so it didn't bother me as much here as it did in the other film. I mean, I just sort of went with that as a given that it's going to make fun of these really wealthy people.
1: If Ray and character here and Woody Harrelson's character in Triangle of Sadness were Related. You could sort of see them comparing notes, though, couldn't you? Well, what's happening, you know, in your little trapped area? What are you doing to people? Oh, this is what I'm doing. What are you doing? In terms of the acting, I really like Ray Fines. I thought he was fine, no pun intended. But I really wasn't sure I bought just the nihilism of his plan. I mean, we talked in a previous episode about fairy tales and fables and metaphors and, you know, things not being exactly what they seem. But for some reason, this just seems so ghoulish.
0: Well, it does. And you know what? I, I share everything you're saying right now. And here's how I handled that. Once the story gets underway and you realize that Ray Fiennes really is a dictator, he's really, it's not just the way he's dictating to the, the patrons, but even more so to his kitchen staff. I mean, he is the Fuhrer. They salute him and actually, and they, you know, and he's totally like they're hypnotized or terrified or some combination of the two. And in terms of this as an endeavor, I had to actually just sort of put my brain on pause. And what I mean by that is The premise, once it really starts kicking into the full story, is so extreme and so borderline implausible. And so this and that, that even like as by way of like an economic model, I couldn't quite make sense of it. Like, okay, even though they're paying $1,020, $50 per plate, you know, that's what these people are paying. Doing the math on it, it still must cost a lot more than that to keep this restaurant going. It's a full kitchen staff and, and the staff lives there and so on. And just, you know, and then the extent to which they're preparing these dishes and so on. I finally had to like, when I say I put the brain on pause, sometimes I say that as a negative observation in a movie. And this one, it was a more pragmatic observation. If I really start to think it through and analyze it, it's so extreme and his behavior is just so off the wall and and so on. And and in terms of what his plot is, his scheme is, and I won't spoil it in terms of what he's going to do. But just simply that I thought, oh, brother, you know, it's that kind of, oh, brother thing. I thought, you know what, just go with it. So at that point, my brain was on pause and I stopped any kind of logical analysis as to how likely would this be and so on. And instead, I focused on what I said before, the likeliness of actually what's being served. That as Marie mentioned, there are restaurants that do this. And I just followed through on that. And that was really amusing much of the way through, even though much of the rest of it, I was not really convinced by so even though the brain's on pause, it's not completely on pause. And some of the characters themselves are are so extreme that they're almost cartoonish. And so at that level, I just sort of went with it. And I saw where the story was headed. And I, I stopped what I would call negative analysis, which would be really easy to do in this case. And I just sort of in, enjoyed the, the menu for, for quite literally what it was, the menu.
1: Now, I will say, you know, it is possible to take a grisly subject and make something that lands differently than this one so like i want to see what your take is and just in terms of how you handle unusual and violent subplot and i thought of two movies that i thought did this once i understood what they were doing with it i thought of these two movies in terms of how they handled sort of similar storylines one is the green butchers the danish movie and the other is the french movie delicatessen what do you think
0: Yeah, those are really significant points of comparison there. When you watch a film like Delicatessen, you know, or you quickly discover that it's going to go there by way of grossness and and, and extremity. And and that's where some viewers will be just turned off, and they probably should turn it off, but other people just sort of go with it. One problem with a film like that, I don't want to say problems, just simply that Sometimes it just kind of goes on and on. It just, it's like if you've been grossed out in one scene, the next scene is just trying to top it, you know, and, and, and that can sort of wear thin after a while. One nice thing about the menu is it's a relatively brisk 106 minutes, you know what I mean? It doesn't dawdle too much. Once it once it's set in motion, however improbable some of the motion might be, it, it just keeps moving. It keeps going ahead there and you follow through on it. So it does have a kind of internal motor that way, you know what I mean? That it's, it's driving that storyline forward. And when some of the characters meet their comeuppance, again, without specifying it, again, when you have characters who are not particularly likable, when they get dispensed with one way or another, I'm not going to shed a tear over that. I might actually sort of smile, even though I'm not approving of this uh, particular master chef and what he's up to, his patrons are not any better than he is in some ways. And, you know, to mention some of them, there's like this one restaurant critic in, in the film. She's played by Janet McTeer who's so full of herself she's so stuffy she's such a dilettante and so on that you know that something's going to happen with her because she can be really quite severe in her critical judgments well something's going to happen to her and John Leguizamo plays this sort of over the hill movie star who's just like so full of himself and and just so unreasonable in terms of a lot of what he says and does you know that if something happens to him you won't exactly feel sorry for him And, and so I could go on and on this way so I will But I mean, there are, you know, several other characters who really are not very nice people, but for various reasons, they've decided to go to this restaurant. So it's really a case where you're not going to find yourself rooting for one. Oftentimes in a movie like this, it could be an Agatha Christie type movie, but you just have like a roster of characters and you at least have one or two characters you find yourself rooting for. It's sort of the horror movie format, isn't it? That, you know, a number of characters can be dispensed with, but oh, I hope she makes it, you know, that kind of thing. I don't really want anyone particularly to make it here. Maybe one or two exceptions, but it's just, you have to take it at that level. It's not a very nice movie, but it's about people who are not very nice.
1: Although they do have one character who's not meant to be there. She is a late fill-in for yes. another person who was supposed to be a foodie's date and that's anya taylor joy who's terrific in this i think they actually had emma stone slated for this and once i read that i thought oh that's so interesting because i thought anya taylor joy's performance was very much an emma stone approach
0: yeah i want to talk about that because even though most of the characters are really not likable there's one who is likable who is a kind of protagonist and she's not meant to be there. She's a substitute date, if you will. And her boyfriend or the guy who brings her there in any event, he's such a sycophant. He's he's just so worshipful of the chef and this and that that he's always apologizing to the chef, you know, for not enjoying something enough or this and that. And so she's the one, she's kind of the voice of reason and of humanity in in an otherwise really cruel world here. And I love the way she tells off her boyfriend for the evening, if you will, when he's been like so apologetic towards the chef. She actually says, this is an exact quote from her, she says to him, you're the customer, you're paying him to serve you. It really doesn't matter whether he likes you or not. She has a lot of comments along those lines. So even though I've said, you know, this is a movie where the people are not very nice and they sort of get what's coming to them. She is really the the one exception to that. And I think it helps to keep the film grounded a bit in terms of, You know the world. We want to have something that you care about there. And Marie, absolutely right. It's a good performance. I mean, she really she's a tough character because she's up against almost everybody else. Not just the restaurant staff, but her fellow diners. She's the one looking around like, what in the world have I gotten myself into here? So she, in many ways, is a surrogate for the viewer, for the audience. Is if you were somehow plucked in and and, you know pushed into this environment, you'd look around like, where am I and can I get away from here? Can I get out of this? So yeah, thank you for mentioning that because I, I think if she weren't there. And everybody was so dislikable. You could just sort of turn it off that way. But yeah, she does keep our rooting interest. Let's put it that way. So that's an important element within the script. She's got her work cut out for her. I'll just leave it at that.
1: Yeah, which is why I think it's a good performance because she really does hold her own. You know, it's easy to get lost in the villainy, you know. I think it's hard to sort of still shine as a... It's not a straight man character. She gets lots of the great lines, like you said. But without her... It's just, you know, an island full of terrible people. In that case, you'd just be hoping that they'd all end up coming to a bad end. Speaking of unpleasant characters, let's go to She Said, which starts off being about sexual harassment and then focuses in on Harvey Weinstein in particular. And I have lots of thoughts about this movie, but Mike, where do you want to start?
0: Well, I'll start with the uh, the real-life source for this, namely uh, Harvey Weinstein. So, you know, as we speak, you know, he was, of course, convicted in a New York court for, you know, sexual assault and rape and, and you know, serving a, a long sentence for that. And as we speak, he's on trial in, in, in California on uh, similar charges. And so, again, the fact that, you know, from all his years running Miramax and then the Weinstein company, that really sad and sordid saga of how he treated actresses in, in particular, but just generally the people around him. So he's he's really, you know, a villain, a real life villain in that respect. And the real life source, of course, is this, this uh, media mogul, this studio head. But specifically in terms of this story, and, and she said, It's about two New York Times journalists, Jody Cantor and Megan Tuey, who, you know, had been writing about similar subject matter, namely Donald Trump, you know, and and now are kind of switching gears as this story gets underway. And they're doing, you know, investigative reporting. And so the film itself functions very much as a procedural. It's very much the day-to-day of gathering facts. It's not always overtly dramatic. It's not quite as overtly dramatic as like a spotlight or all the president's men. I mean, it it does have an inherent drama of what's been done to these women and should they testify and so on. So I'm not downplaying that, but it doesn't have shadowy figures lurking in a parking garage. It's not it's not that kind of thriller format. It's more about the day to day procedural work. Which sometimes I don't want to say it's boring, but it's deliberate. In other words, you really like you, you want to get these women to open up and talk about what happened to them, but they're afraid, uh, understandably. So you have a lot of you know knocking on doors and 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 you know sending texts and 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 calling people and this and that. It's frustrating for them, and and I think we need to share in that frustration of how difficult it is to get people on the record to talk about someone like this because long before it goes to court. You need somebody who will step forward and and be willing to take it to court. That was part of the Harvey Weinstein issue. For so many years, people knew about this, but it was like an open secret in Hollywood. So to the film's credit, it it very much explores that in an admirably mundane way. It takes you through that, and it really focuses a lot on the lives of these two women, these two female reporters, their, their domestic lives with, with spouses and children and all that, the, the complexity of the situation for them. Now, much as I you know, admire the film for that subject matter and, and for the r- really uh, compelling performances in it, thematically, it makes its point or points and then tends to make them over and over again. And so there are places where I just thought it was almost clubbing me over the head with it, where like, yes, I agree, I agree, but you know, enough. And there's one scene in particular, and I mentioned this to a friend, and he said, oh, you're so right. He said, I felt the same way about this scene. A lot of the interviews they do with people are in bars and restaurants. And you know, you want to have like a quasi-public social setting to sit down at the table and say, are you willing to talk now? Back and forth that way. So in one of these meetings, and it's not just between the two female reporters and the women who've been victimized, it's also the two reporters meeting with their editors and others and so on. So it's it's oftentimes that kind of social setting. So anyway, the scene I'm talking about takes place in a restaurant where that kind of conversation is taking place at the table. And this obnoxious guy comes over and tries to pick up one of the reporters. And she brushes him off with some rather choice (laughs) obscenities and sends him on his way. That was a scene where I just thought, you know, I get the point already. It was what I call thematic overkill. Yes, such guys exist. And yes, they try to pick up women like that with shameless lines and so on. And yes, she was right in telling them off like that. But this comes well into the movie, at which point I felt like I didn't need that further reinforcement of that. You don't have to have that scene there. And if you start to, the film runs 128 minutes. If you start to cut a few of those scenes, I think it becomes more manageable as a narrative as is. I just think it starts to not exactly wear at its welcome as just having a feeling, OK, I, I'm with you on this. But do you need this scene? Do you need that one? Maybe it's a little too much. What do you think, Marie?
1: I know exactly the scene you're talking about. And I sort of read it as having to work so closely with all of these details and try to convince women to come forward and, and getting death threats and terrible, horrifying you know, voicemails and stuff like that. I thought it showed that it's not just guys like Harvey Weinstein. It's, you know, you're just minding your own business in a bar. And then when this happens, she actually, she loses it. She goes off on the guy. Because, you know, there's just a point where you just can't take it anymore. That's kind of how I thought that that scene was meant to play. But I had a real problem with the editing of this movie. From the very beginning, they open with this scene that has no context. And it takes more than an hour to get back to it. So you can figure out what it even meant. I thought yeah. that was a major problem. I felt lost. I thought, "What did I miss? Something? Did I, you know, look away and miss something?"
0: Well, that's then- possible. That's possible. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm agreeing with I'm, I'm agreeing with you completely. The film opens with a scene in Ireland in 1992. And in terms of what's happening to a woman there, thematically, it's congruent in terms of, you know, men, men being the the aggressors and this and that. But the way it's opened and the way it's then edited, Marie, you're absolutely right. It was, it was borderline confusing, actually. And it, it will eventually revisit that. It will come back to that. But I thought it was just extremely awkward in terms of what I'll call narrative construction. But I think there would have been a better way to either use that as a story thread or maybe not use it at all even. You know, that's why I'm saying this is a film that I think when I talk about editing here, I think it could have been not only re-edited, but edited down in some Mm -hmm. ways. I know what you're saying about that barroom scene, that it's not just Harvey, it's a lot of other guys too, but I'd sort of gotten that point already. You know, it wasn't a surprise to me that men in general can can be that way. And so on behalf of my gender, I was apologizing to the filmmakers as I watched it. And so uh, as I'm watching, I kept thinking there were scenes like that that could either be reordered or perhaps just cut. I mean, you don't need to have scene after scene making the same essential point.
1: But I, again, I thought that the point was not, you know, there are other men who do this. It was that she had come to the end of her rope. She was trying to hold it together, be professional, and then, you know, having it just thrown in her face in a social situation, I think, you know, it was just meant to show how her nerves were fraying. The other scene that I thought was, again, I was like, wait, did I miss something? Was you see the two women go to meet Gwyneth Paltrow and you see the swimming pool and it's this long shot. You see them, you know, sitting at a little table outside and then someone comes to say, that, you know, Miss Paltrow will be with you in a minute, cut, and then they're in the car driving away talking about it. (laughs) Wait, wait, what happened there? I know. know, It was the weirdest way to handle it. Why show us the house at all? Why not just have them in the car talking about it? It was a waste of time.
0: It was, you know, and it, I almost felt like it was like a, a, a superstar cameo or something. Right. It's just like, you know what I mean? Like, here's a star by your swimming pool and there's, but then it cuts away. But well, what exactly were you talking about? And I always felt like, did I blink? Did I miss something? Yes. Let, me, let me add one more thing to it in terms of how the editing could be much smarter. And also the basic narrative construction is kind of sloppy in places. The film does have some flashbacks in it. Now, in most movies, you wouldn't begrudge a flashback, but here's a question. Because this movie is very much a procedural about what these two female reporters find, their day-to-day grind of trying to get information, should you have flashbacks to scenes, to situations and information that the reporters themselves would not have been privy to? See, that, that thing is a really valid reservation. I think it once you have a narrative structure that it's what the women see through their eyes, what they get into their tape recorders, I don't think you should cut via flashback to things they wouldn't have seen or known directly there. I think it's a mistake. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I agree completely. Also, I felt that, I mean, there were moments where it was like, no, that was a clever way to handle it. There's a scene where Harvey Weinstein comes into the New York Times offices. By the way, they actually shot this at the actual New York Times offices, first time that's ever been done. And, you know, obviously they're not going to get the real Harvey Weinstein. So you just get a shot of a a guy from the back who looks like him. It's effective. And you know, it's not really him, but it's a movie. Nobody's really the people. I thought that was very well done. You get the real Ashley Judd. And I really loved her being in it. So why couldn't you just have had a shot of some woman with blonde hair from the back coming out to meet them at Gwyneth Paltrow's house? I just thought it was so Uh, such an obvious plot hole
0: yeah, I like the way they treated Harvey Weinstein as an actual figure in the film. He's he's really kind of menacing and ominous because oftentimes he's referred to but not seen or if you see him it's from it's the back of his head that way. And I thought that that worked extremely well because if you tried to have an actor like imitating him, becoming him, that could have either been sometimes not either convincing or or might have been almost cartoonish, you know, if you know what I mean. You know, like like here he is being gross and acting out. It's better to have him as this unseen menace or barely seen menace, you know, the back of his head as he enters the New York Times office or something. Maria, I thought that worked really well in the film, don't you?
1: Yes, I did. Yeah, because you felt like, ooh, it's, you know, you knew it wasn't going to turn around. It lets you suspend disbelief. And it was a clever way to do it. And they could have done more of it. I wanted to mention that Brad Pitt is one of those film's producers. And at the time when he was dating Gwyneth Paltrow, Harvey Weinstein tried something on her and she told him about it. So he knew about it back in the day. I can't help but wonder if producing this movie was some way of, of making some sort of atonement for not having spoken out or done more with his power back you know, in the moment. What do you think, Mike?
0: Well, I obviously don't know, but at gut level, I, I feel the same way. I, I think a lot of people in Hollywood knew about this behavior but it was something that was kept within Hollywood, right? What happens in Hollywood stays in Hollywood in that respect. And so it took a few brave actresses finally coming forward. And I'm so glad that Ashley Judd plays herself. That's an instance of, you know, here's one of the people who did step forward, but a lot of people belatedly stepped forward, didn't they? They Mm talked about abuse that had taken place more than a decade earlier. We all knew that, that he was a bully. I mean, that that, you know, all kinds of boorish behavior, but the extreme behavior that the film goes into was not generally known to the public. We weren't surprised by it, frankly, when it did become public, but it wasn't really reported back then, was it? And, and so I think you're absolutely right, Marie, this uh, kind of remorse, don't you think, a kind of guilt that, that people didn't step forward who could have stepped forward 10, even 20 years ago, uh, but it's only the last few years that they have. So thank goodness that they have.
1: Now, I also agree with you that I thought there was a little bit too much backstory about the two reporters. I thought it was a good thing that, you know, we realized seeing them in their at-home scenes that they both had daughters. So I think one of the things they were trying to underscore was, you know, you have to do this for yourself, of course, and for other victims, but also you want a better world for, you know, the children that you brought into it. So I got that, but I felt like they kept coming back to show them that, you know, these are mothers and, you know, you know, women with families and, and, you know, they're just like you. And I thought they could have kept, I assumed that. So I felt like they spent too much time with scenes like, you know, one of them in a hotel room, FaceTiming with her preteen daughter, nice scene, but not necessary to the plot.
0: Well, Sue Marie, that was my earlier point. If you have one or two scenes like that, it makes the thematic point. These are also wives and mothers and so on, why they're doing this. But when you have like a a second or third reiteration like how much thematic reinforcement do you need at that point and that's where I think again the film could have been a lot tighter just take some of those scenes out completely and we wouldn't be the wiser we'd actually be the happier that the story the procedural moves forward to its conclusion Uh, instead it tends to dawdle and just kind of double back on itself and Marie your point it's like okay I get it I get it I get it (laughs) but here's another scene with you know at home with spouse and child.
1: Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to check out our other podcasts at dragondigitalradio.podbean.com and also on Spotify and Pandora under Dragon Digital Radio. And we will see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.